Welcome to the Ridley Institute podcast. I'm Sam Forniker, your host, joined here by my friend Steve Tong. Uh, Steve, welcome to the podcast. Good day, Sam. Thanks. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolute pleasure. Um, Steve, do, do you have do you have something wrong with your voice? Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Something wrong. <laughs> I was ex- I was expecting. I don't know Midwest accent. Hey, look, look, the Matildas are uh, into the semi-final of the FIFA Women's World Cup tonight. I don't think there's anything wrong yeah. with my accent. Congra- yes, congrats. Very good. Very good. Congratulations. Yeah, the um, the France match wasn't it? Was oh, that was epic. It Absolutely was fingernail biting stuff. So anyway, let's move on. So just before we um, pitch in, I. I think I need to say, I can't really believe it. This is the first episode of the third season, or I don't know what to call it, series, batch, whatever, third epic chapter of this little podcast uh, produced by the Ridley Institute here at St. Andrew's Anglican Church uh, in the Charleston area. Um, At Ridley, uh, if you're joining us for the first time, Ridley's all about equipping the people of God uh, in lay-level training and Bible and theology, as well as in apprenticeship and training for gospel ministry. And this podcast is just something that we um, get to do because it's just fun, honestly, uh, chatting with awesome people like Steve about what discipleship looks like in our secular age, or um, or better, what it could look like if we kicked our imaginations into gear. Uh, and asked what God's really up to in our world. So welcome back. If you're rejoining us, hi there uh, if you're new. All right, so Steve, you and I, um, we're both Anglicans. I'm in the States, you're in Sydney, um, but we're both inheritors of this way of being a Christian that finds its uniquely formative moment in the 16th century. Uh, so just for the sake of listeners, I'm I'm aware at the start of this conversation that words like Anglican or Reformation probably mean a lot to some listeners, probably not so much to others. Um, So since we're going to be digging deeply into the English Reformation, I wonder first, can you just give us a really rough and ready overview of what on earth the English Reformation was? When did it happen? Why did it happen? Who were the key players? And why do we care about it today? Yeah, good good question to start with. Uh, So the English Reformation is part of the wider uh, period, I guess we could call the Reformation, um, starting let's say 1517 with Martin Luther and now in the 95 Theses onto his church wall in Wittenberg in Germany. And that spreads out through Europe. Um, And at the same time in Zurich, you've got a guy called uh, Zwingli who's kind of doing his own thing uh, in terms of coming to his own uh, personal understanding of, of justification by faith alone in the Bible. So you've got those guys, one in uh, Zurich in Zwingli, a guy in uh, Germany uh, in, in Luther, and their ideas start to spread out. So this is in the 16th century, early 1500s. Uh, these works, in particular Luther's works, spread into England, and there's a, a bunch of guys, uh, particularly in Cambridge University, who start reading Luther's works, and, and they agree with him, and they, they get, I guess, turned on, or, or rather we could say that the Spirit enlightens their hearts. Um, and and they start to uh, dig into their Bibles as well, and and start to, I guess, get convicted um, that salvation is by faith alone, and that's the, one of the key doctrines of the Reformation. So out of the University of um, Cambridge come a number of guys. One of the key guys is a guy called Thomas Cramner, who um, goes on to be the Archbishop of Canterbury, and he's really involved with Henry the Eighth's divorce case or better known as the great the king's great matter and somehow through god's providence he's 
he's a protected species. So if you know anything about Henry VIII, he is a capricious, um, egotistical uh, megalomaniac, um, a, a real tyrant. Six wives, um, beheads two of them, and um, is not shy of sending people to the gallows. But Cramner, as um, as his archbishop, survives all of this, uh, survives plots against his own life, and throughout that, under God's providence, uh, Thomas Cramner is able to lead the English Reformation. So to put that in a little bit more context, Luther comes to faith, sorry, Cramner comes to faith, having read a lot of Luther and actually uh, been over to Germany. He diverges theologically a little bit away from Luther. Um, and as Archbishop, he starts to gather people to the English church in uh, plum positions like bishoprics, um, uh, such as uh, Ridley down into the um, uh, plum position in London as Bishop of London, and he gathers other folk into other areas uh, of England. And this is in the middle of the 1500s. And two key appointments are actually um, guys from Europe coming in to be the, the head of theology, essentially, in Oxford and in Cambridge. So a guy in Oxford called Peter Marta Vermigli, and a guy in Cambridge called Martin Butzer, and they are teaching the next generation of ministers and theologians in England so that as they grow up, uh, the Church of England will be supplied with um, ministers who who know the evangelical doctrine, know their scriptures really well, and, and they sort of kick on the English Reformation. So that's in a nutshell. Obviously, there's, there's much more to it than that, but... There we go. Yeah, so it's actually the perfect diving board just for getting into your book, right? Your first book, which has just come out with Brill. um, It's entitled Building the Church of England, the Book of Common Prayer, and the Edwardian Reformation. I'd read sort of the earlier sort of your thesis. um, I'd skip stones along at this one I I dove into and read. And I should say, Steve, so it's this really, it's a sophisticated work of scholarship. It's also really accessible. And um, and you didn't sort of as you know as a historian you didn't surrender that kind of methodological objectivity, but I have to say just as a believer it was such an encouragement to to read. Um, so really really yeah, well done, brother. Just threading that oh, I appreciate it. that needle. Yeah. Um, so just a big picture question to start with, I guess. What what is it that you hope your reader will walk away with? Uh, you know, having read your book, understanding more fully. Yeah, that's a good question. I guess anyone who writes a book has to be thinking about the the audience who they're writing to. Um, and when I started research on this, I had a few different, I guess, audiences uh, that I was aiming for. Initially, it was an academic audience, and I, I wanted to take on um, a few bugbears that I had in terms of understanding the English Reformation that um, uh, the way I read my my primary sources and, and went into the research, I, I felt the the assumed or the the accepted scholarship was a little bit askew. So that was one thing. But I was really writing to um, the current church in, in another sense. And so people who are outside of the, I guess, the ivory towers of scholarship. And so I wanted to wanted to give people a book who uh, are interested in their Christian identity and are happy to plug into the history of that to know, I guess, uh, that they aren't alone in in some senses. And that's the beauty of history for me. We often have this presentist mindset 
that these issues we're facing, whether they be um, personal, individual, uh, spiritual issues of temptation and those kind of things, or sometimes the more institutional issues that we face in the Anglican Church, and we think this generation is the only generation, or oh, I'm the only person who's you know, experience these kind of things. History teaches us very differently. And so one of the hopes of my book is basically to, to put in people's hands uh, um, a, a, a bunch of stories about uh, people who have gone before us who have fought similar kind of battles, but also to give people a confidence that um, God is providential over that and that we can tr- trust God throughout all our, uh, I guess, the tensions of life and the struggles of that, but also um, to be confident in our Anglican identity and 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 trust that this is a a good um, solid structure within which to do ministry and to proclaim the gospel because I think that's what the foundation of of the Anglican uh, institution certainly is. Yeah, yeah, and I, I thought Steve that just um, reaching for ecclesiology, so ecclesiology, right? The the theology of the church basically is. A, you know, it's it's a key concern in the book, and I thought just from the standpoint of inspiring confidence in Anglicans today, that's a particularly mm-hmm. useful focus, um, just because it's something that um, among detractors or critics of of Anglicans over the centuries, there's 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 been a lot of kind of half baked criticism, and, and many Anglicans haven't quite known how to kind of come back to it. Um, this book is actually a really great resource from from that perspective too. So, why why Steve is ecclesiology? Um, why is it such an issue in the Reformation? I'm aware that his you know history buffs they might think of the Reformation they might think okay sacraments justification invocation of saints etc cetera, etc. Cetera. But why is ecclesiology an important issue when it comes to grasping what's going on in the minds of people like Thomas Cranmer, John Hooper, Nicholas Ridley, John Bale, and so on? Yeah. Again, another good question. So just just for our listeners' sake, ecclesiology is a big fancy word for saying the doctrine of the church. So how do we how do we define what the church is? And um, is that an institution? Is it a local gathering of people? You know, when two or three gather in my name, God is there. Is, is that church? Is it a bigger, wider thing? Is it uh, a fellowship that spans across the globe? And even through time as well, so that's that's kind of where where I started um, thinking about these things in terms of ecclesiology. How do we actually uh, grasp uh, what the church is? Now, for the Reformation guys, it's a really key question. I guess the most obvious thing is uh, the Protestant movement is a clear protest against the Roman Catholic Church that had stood the test of time for, you know, a a thousand years since the fall of Rome, essentially. And so in many senses, the Catholic critiques of the Protestant Reformation uh, are actually pretty cutting in terms of you are starting a new church. Now, the reformers would, would go back and say, actually, we're not starting a new church. We're going back to first principles and we're recovering the original church. So it's a real key uh, question for the reformers uh, right across Europe from from Luther uh, onwards. And where do you, if you are uh, saved as an individual and you have a personal uh, relationship with God through faith in Jesus, what does that mean in terms of your uh, relationship to your brothers and sisters who hold the same faith? And so as I started, uh, Luther and Zwingli in, in Germany and in Zurich in Switzerland, um, 
they have their own differences. But when you get to England, you've got someone like Thomas Cramner, for instance. So you've got these three different people. And while they've got slight differences in uh, their doctrines, I would argue that all three of them hold to the central tenet of justification by faith alone. So in that, at that level, they're all Christians. They don't live in the same space geographically, but they hold on to the same salvation faith. Does that mean they're in the same church? I would argue yes. And so it's these kinds of questions that the English reformers have to um, wrestle with. So as Henry VIII uh, sort of wax and wanes in terms of his support for the English Reformation, Thomas Cramner as Archbishop of Canterbury is able to put in place in England some doctrinal changes within the English church to change that institution to make it more in line with Protestant doctrine. But the key moment comes when Henry VIII dies in 1547 and his young son Edward VI comes to the throne. Now, Edward VI is a a convinced evangelical Protestant and he essentially gives his archbishop, who happens to be his godfather as well, uh, carte blanche in terms of reforming the institution. So we come back to this question of ecclesiology and what is the church? So for the English reformers, Thomas Cramer in particular, but I'll mention some other guys in a moment, they're wrestling with this, uh, this question. The English, uh, the, sorry, the Church of England as an institution of the state, does that actually constitute the church in the sense of the invisible fellowship of believers that if you if you live in England or if you live in, in Sydney, Australia or New York, America, wherever it might be, yet you hold the same faith, you're part of that invisible fellowship of believers that stretches across geography and also through time, and hence why we say things like the Apostles' Creed uh, each Sunday at church because it connects us through time and that, that sense of eternity as well. So ecclesiology really is a key question that these reformers are um, thinking about, wrestling with, and they, they have to have an answer to. One, from the institutional point of view, um, particularly under Edward VI, in terms of re-establishing uh, the Church of England upon uh, good biblical foundations, but also at that more personal spiritual level, who is in the church? How can we decipher between those who hold a true faith and those who don't have a true faith? And they uh, are they in the church? Are they not in the church? And, and how do we put, I guess, boundaries around that? So, Steve, the, I mean, the challenge for evangelical ecclesiology, evangelical in that 16th century sense of the word, right? Um, the challenge for them was the need to give visible form to an invisible, you know, entity, Reality, yeah, and so you know a major concern there's to identify certain marks of of the true church. Um, can can you tell us about those? What those marks were? Why the reformers thought they were, in, you know, a useful yeah. concept to emphasize? Absolutely, yep. So so you, you hit the nail on the head there in terms of going from this invisible entity, the the spiritual fellowship, and making that a visible, tangible. Um, an expression, I guess, in human flesh. How do, how do you take the, the spiritual and make it uh, tangible? Um, so the reformers, and this is pretty uh, uniform across the, the Reformation spectrum uh, from, I guess, uh, the early Anglicans like Cramner and Ridley um, right across to, to Lutherans, uh, Calvinists, and, and later generation of, of Presbyterians under John Knox, for instance. Um, 
The two key marks uh, are, one, the right doctrine, so believing uh, from Scripture, and that is seen through preaching right doctrine, so preaching is right up there, and the other visible mark is the right administration of sacraments. So preaching and sacraments, um, according to the Bible, the, the Word of God, and they're the two key marks of the visible church as an expression of the invisible uh, spiritual truths. There are a couple of other marks that some uh, other reformers sort of, uh, they wouldn't disagree with, but they don't put the same emphasis on. But essentially, coming back to that question of ecclesiology, who's the true church, who's not, if a church, be it Anglican, Presbyterian, Baptist, uh, I, I might, this is controversial, but could even say, you know, Roman Catholic in the 16th century, if there was good preaching according to the doctrine as revealed in Scripture and the sacraments were administered according to Scripture, then that local parish church would constitute a, a, a segment of the real true church um, eternal, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, really, really helpful. Yeah, thank you for that. So I just, I w- I'm mindful of your time, Stephen. I, I really wanted to get into the kind of the guts of, of, <laughs> of yeah. the book. If it's okay, we'll just make some prairie dog soup, okay? We'll just take these one yeah. at a time. Um, right, so first up, as you say, it's, it's preaching, right? So a little bit of a generalization here, but I think it's fair to say the English Reformation, um, it, I mean, I'm interested if you share this view, it's the, it's distinguished you know, I think from the other reform movements and that it alone began as a reformation of preaching um, as opposed to, and the distinction breaks down a little bit, but as opposed to a reformation of doctrine. Um, but mm. but point is, I mean, preaching is preaching is up front. Um, so, so how did preaching reshape liturgical worship in England during the mid-Tudor period? How did it bring some, how did the reformers use it to try to bring some clarity to this question about the church? Yeah, that's a good question. So uh, I delve into this a little bit in, in the book, but people think that before the Reformation, there was no culture of preaching. That's that's not actually true. That's a bit of a myth. There, there was a long culture of preaching, certainly in England, dating back to at least the 13th century, you know, possibly even earlier earlier than that, but it wasn't institutionalized in the sense that it wasn't part of the regular diet of a Sunday worship service. And so one of the key things that Thomas Cramner does, um, within six months of Henry VIII dying, so this is six months into 1547, and again, this is the first liturgical move that he, he makes, is he issues a whole set of homilies. So the first book of homilies comes out, and there are a set of 12 um, sermons that every parish minister is instructed to read in serial, so it's in a series throughout the year, uh, to ensure that the parishes, uh, the, the, the lay folk throughout England are receiving uh, good uh, Protestant doctrine, and they're being fed on the Word of God through that preaching, backed up obviously by Scripture. In the uh, in, throughout the service, but preaching is very much there from from word go. So uh, Cramner, in his genius, takes the culture of preaching that already exists, and then he supercharges it with an evangelical doctrine, and he makes it by law part of the regular diet of a Sunday service, which hadn't been there there before. So I think you're right there in terms of the English Reformation goes straight to the heart of the lay folk via preaching, 
as opposed to perhaps um, in some of the areas where it's more doctrinal wrestle at, the, at that top academic level and then letting that trickle down, um, uh, Kramer, Kramer goes straight straight to the man on the street. Hmm. I, I I had not picked up, by the way, Steve, I think I can't remember where you said this, but that the homilies, I mean, I knew that they were they were to be read, you know, seriatim, ser- serially. I did not know that at one point they were set out to be read like in accordance with the Psalter. So it, as the Psalter was laid out, so over the course of a month, which wasn't, I yeah. think, I think the ideal, I mean, the ideal situation, as you said, was sun- Sunday reading as opposed to daily reading. But anyway, total minor point. Yeah. But interesting. Yeah, no, yeah, the, it, it is interesting because the idea is that you've got the Word of God, but not everyone, and this sounds patronized, but not everyone had, particularly in those days, because literacy rates were so low and access to education wasn't what it is today. And so you've got that, but you also needed someone to explain word, the Word of God. And that's where I think the minister, the local minister, came into place. But even then, um, not um, not every parish minister had the same level of education as as Cramner, for instance. And so um, it's a genius move from Cramner because he's making sure that the local parish ministers are held accountable um, and he's also feeding the flock at the same time with the Word of God and then explaining that uh, through the sermons too. Yeah, yeah. So... and that might, I mean, moving now, Steve, from the preaching of the word to the to the sacraments, if we can, kind of in uh, this in the second chapter, right? We get to the to the sacraments, baptism, Holy Communion. Um, it's a particularly fascinating chapter, I think, because, uh, well, I mean, for one thing, because an ecclesiological study of the sacraments, I mean, how the theology of the church shaped the reformers' understanding of baptism and the supper has really been long overdue, um, and somewhere around page. Like 109, you say that the reformers, you know, they're they're often accused of fragmenting, of individualizing the the, the church, and, and in fact, English society. But you argue actually the opposite. Actually, evangelical theology it didn't atomize and internalize so much as um, it unified. And this is totally not the right word, but kind of socialized, like reinforced. Actually, the building up of the body. Um, uh, so, so tell us about the way that the sacraments, you know, contributed to the reformers' vision of the church. Yeah. So, um, let me just put this into historiographical context for, for a yeah, moment. Good. Um, so, just just let me indulge uh, listeners <laughs> for, for a historical method for a moment. Um, in the 1950s, the the accepted uh, view of the English Reformation was basically that. Um, of of course, England was always going to accept Protestantism, and and um, Elizabeth the first reign really made sure of that. And England is always considered a Protestant uh, country, and so being British is as an identity is synonymous with being Protestant. Having the late seventies, early eighties, there was a bunch of Roman Catholic um, uh, historians who started to challenge that. And it culminated in a great work by Eamon Duffy in the early 90s called Stripping of the Altars. And it's a really good uh, work, um, but I'm not convinced of all of its conclusions. So in that work, Duffy basically paints a picture that before the Reformation, there was this idyllic uh, sense of community within England, throughout Europe, and um, it was all based around the, the mass, the Roman Catholic mass, and people would come in because there, no ch- there was no TV, no Instagram, no TikTok stuff. So going to church was the 
the key thing in your week you go and it'd be social and it'd be you know beautiful happy days a little bit like utopia but according to these historians the reformation came in and ruptured that whole social fabric of society and because the reformers were so ardently opposed to the the catholic doctrine of transubstantiation in communion um or or the mass uh, as was known by by the roman catholics at the time um when the when the reformers took that away they weren't just taking away a spiritual um uh, ritual if i can use that phrase they were actually demolishing the very social fabric of english community life and that that was um, essentially very powerfully put by Eamon Duffy in Stripping of the Altars, uh, amongst other historians. And that has been kind of the accepted way that, that most historians have seen the English Reformation since uh, essentially the 90s. So now, 30 years down the track, I wanted to revisit that question and, 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 and I guess, ask, did Duffy get it right? Is that actually what's there? And again, if you go back to the first principles, looking at the manuscripts here, looking at the way that the reformers, almost to a man, or actually, I would say all of them would say something along the lines of the sacraments are a key mark of the church, of ecclesiology, not because it atomizes or makes individual believers separate from one another, but for precisely the opposite reason, that when you gather physically brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, to either celebrate the new life of, of a new believer through baptism or when you gather and you share bread and you share wine, you're physically uh, fellowshipping and and uh, the sacrament has power because of the word of God, the promises through scripture, and that brings us together and that is an essential component of, of making that invisible spiritual truth, your faith internalized, externalized and shared together and so rather than atomizing people partaking and participating in the sacraments baptism and and um, communion binds us together in a more real way um, and strengthens our bonds of fellowship in that so it, it, I think you said earlier it's a socializing um, practice and that certainly certainly is a way um, that I think the reformers see it. It's a spiritual thing but it also has byproducts for the community as well. Yeah. I hope, by the way, see that that's taken up by people who are doing work in Anglican theology today. I, mm. I really hope that that historical understanding um, because I, I think you're right. I think there is a certain, a certain viewpoint that sees um, Protestantism, evangelical theology in particular, as responsible for kind of devastating a whole way of mm. life and actually a whole kind of way of culture. Um, I've mentioned this before with somebody on the podcast, but there's a great Simpsons episode where Bart dies and goes to heaven and like he, he there's a fork in the road and he's got to decide, am I going to go to Protestant heaven or Catholic heaven? And Protestant, <laughs> Protestant heaven is very sort of waspy and, um, yeah. you know, um, lots of argyle socks and sweaters and things. And Catholic heaven is great fun. People fighting on tables and, you know, dancing <laughs> and um, brawling. And um, anyhow, I, I, I think... I mean, there's 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 probably there are probably social or demographic elements of truth in that, but I think that the the that holding evangelical theology responsible uh, for you know 
wrongful caricatures is is really important to kind of to actually call out at a theological oh, yeah. level. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, it's not my area, but you know, generation later from 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 uh, the guys that I look at, you know, the Puritan movement starts up, and then into the next uh, centuries so of the, the 1600s, the 17th century, um, uh, under Cromwell, for instance, and and the way that the word Puritan has been, um, well, not diluted, but, but manipulated and twisted into something completely different to, to what the original Puritans, I think, would have um, would have thought themselves as. So, yeah, the, the popular culture takes these things, and also scholarship also takes takes uh, these things, picks up the ball and runs with it. And I think part of the role as, as historians is we need to correct that, and you've you've got to go back to to the to the sources in good Reformation form. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. so I'm I'm going to push this right along, Steve, because yep. again, keeping an eye on time. So, lots of focus on what's going on in public worship, right? Which brings us right to chapter three to do with the Sabbath uh, day, and mm. um and 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 so in chapter three, you dig with this issue you'd already touched on briefly earlier, and that was how even within the camp of the reformers, you can spot different strategies, different visions for how reform of the English church ought to operate. And um, and in particular, it seems that there were no little, you know, difference. There were no, 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 there was no little difference among the reformers on the extent to which the Sabbath served as a blueprint for public worship. Um, so I think of John Hooper here. Hooper, very much friend of the show, um, did a new Parker Society episode on him. Hooper, as you point out, developed a particular theological support for the position that the Christian has has got to, is obligated to, observe the Sabbath. Um, and in fact, something like Hooper's dream kind of comes true, uh, comes into force, but based on a quite different theological viewpoint than Hooper's. Is, is, is something like mm. that right? Am I reading you correctly? Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I think you're right. So again, um, John Hooper, I, I'm a huge fan of. I can't wait to meet him in heaven one day. <laughs> Got lots of questions. Um, Hooper, I think, is a really misunderstood character of the English Reformation, and he's often been read retrospectively back as the the harbinger or, or, or the first Puritan before Puritanism was a thing. I don't think that's actually what his intentions were. And this is jumping forward, I guess, into chapter four there, but I really take that on and say that Hooper um, was more than happy to become a bishop within the institution. He had his, some issues with wearing um, his robes at the ordination service. But in the end, he became a model bishop and was happy to toe the party line on, on many of the issues. But he, but he was a bit of a stick in the mud about a, a couple of things. So in chapter three, I delve into this um, this tricky doctrine of the doctrine of the Sabbath, and what do we do? So, uh, the way I got there was if you got the two key marks of preaching and sacraments, okay, relatively easy to deal with, I guess conceptually. But how do you actually? What happens next? Do you just go on a Sunday service? You you um, listen to a great sermon, you take communion, and you walk out of there. Wonderful. Well, the doctrine of the Sabbath for the reformers was a key response, I guess, to that. So um, a, a little bit, uh, th this is putting words into their mouth, but I guess if you think about how does Jesus respond to each of the people he meets in the Gospels, and one of those continual phrases is, you know, be on your way, go away, but repent and don't sin anymore. 
And so in some ways, the reformers' doctrine of the Sabbath is a little bit like that. You've come to church, um, you've heard the Word of God, you're responding to that, uh, you are um, showing your fellowship with one another by taking the sacraments, and then you leave the church, How else? what are you going to do with the rest of your Sunday? And so that is keeping the Sabbath holy. Keeping the Sabbath holy doesn't mean putting your feet up on the couch and having the afternoon rest. It's actually going to work for God. So you, you work Monday through Saturday, your day job selling bread if you're a baker or whatever it might be. Then on the Sunday, it is specifically set aside so that you can do the Lord's work. Now, that could come in a whole you know, range of, of different activities, giving charity to the poor. Um, it might be going to help out your neighbour doing whatever. It might be repairing the church eaves or, or whatever it might be, but, but essentially that's it. Um, and there are certain issues which which we I'm pressed for time now to, to go into there, but but I wanted to to think carefully about that. What do the reformers think about the Sabbath? Um, and I guess challenge us coming back to one of our original questions as a reader: Do we consider the Sabbath holy now in the 21st century? How do we spend our Sundays? Um, are we actually faithful witnesses in the world? by setting aside a day that is different, distinguished, and holy in that sense of being separated for the purposes of God Yeah, in that sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. really help. Again, again, Steve, this is where the book is really helpful. I'm, I'm, am I celebrating, am, am I marking the Sabbath when I go weekly to the traveling baseball team? Nope. Sorry, yeah. you're not. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, <laughs> you know. that's right. Hate to, like, hate what, are, what are our rhythms of life? How do they mark us out as different and, and, and doing doing things according to God's word? Or do yeah. we just follow the stream of culture yeah. that we're in? Yeah. yeah. And speaking of doing things according to God's word, the, the <laughs> chapter chapter four on bishops is just awesome. I don't know how far we're gonna get. We'll just but I do want to touch on this. Yeah. So man, this chapter four was good. Favorite chapter of the book. Um oh, thanks, mate. And so much. I mean Oh, just over the years since reading some of Ashley, Ashley Knowles stuff on on the uh, on the ordinal, just early on, um, I've come to appreciate more and more of what's going on in Cranmer's ordinal in, in 1550. So I'm I'm particularly interested in how the ordinal, uh, which which is the you know Cranmer's ordination, just for the listener, Cranmer's kind of ordination services basically for the making of deacons and priests and, and bishops how Cranmer's ordinal refines the understanding of what it is that a bishop does in evangelical ministry. So, Steve, could, could you just walk us through um, maybe just very briefly what a conventional understanding of the bishop's ministry in late medieval England might have looked like? But but if we can only touch on one thing, on how the ordinal presents this alternative evangelical model of Episcopal ministry. Yeah, um, I mean, we could do a whole podcast on this, I totally. guess. So I'll try and reduce it to a 60-second grab. In many respects, because of the the relationship of the church and the state after the fall of Rome, so this is, you know, from, let's say, 500 onwards, and the development of politics and society through the Middle Ages, you've got this interwoven connection of uh, politicians and churchmen. And so the bishop... The local bishop in a particular area plays a key role, sort of as an intermediary. 
So I'm going down this track of, you know, that they've got they've got a uh, political role, but they've also got a spiritual role as well. Let's not deny that. But in, they're trying to straddle the two in terms of their, their political role, um, uh, how much allegiance do they pay to their king or, or, the, or the sovereign in that area. Uh, but they've also got that spiritual role there. And so there's a real mixture uh, between the two. And the reason I say that is the emphasis is not – it's not on preaching the word of God and it's not pastoring the flock. So when Cramner, as Archbishop of Canterbury, gets his opportunity to uh, reconfigure and, and reinvest that position, he does so through the ordinal. And one of the key things here is actually he invests the bishops uh, with the, the express duty to teach the word of God faithfully, and that is their number one priority. And to feed the flock, to feed the flock, to feed the flock. That phrase keeps coming through in the ordinal, and um, he's so the bishop is seen as as um, the chief pastor, but really the chief shepherd of the earthly flock. Again, taking a lot from John, uh, the Gospel of John, and and and, and um, throughout the Old Testament, and, and Jesus in terms of who is the chief shepherd. Well, these bishops have done their training; they've proved through their holy living. Uh, they've got those godly credentials to lead the earthly flock, and and it's that image of being a shepherd and a, and a pastor, um, leading people according to the word of God, um, which is that key difference, and it diminishes the political role compared to the medieval uh, situation, and reinvests it, refocuses it uh, according to a spiritual um, uh, role and, and focus and purpose for these bishops more so than anything else, I think. Yeah, it's a good reminder yeah. for me too, Steve. Thank you for that. I mean, just to be, I mean, to be praying for anybody who's who's in the gospel ministry, but particularly yeah. even and even and especially for those of us who are, to be praying for godly bishops. I mean, to be praying for our bishops for their mm-hmm. encouragement, um, for their boldness in in doing this work. And um, oh yeah, uh, but I mean, anyone in positions of leadership as well. Um, yeah. The local minister or the assistant mm-hmm. minister, mm-hmm. and yeah, all, all the way through, because they've got such a weight of responsibility. Yeah. In terms, of when you when you think about it, it's um, it is the care of souls, and I use that phrase because, uh, coming back to the ordinal stuff, Cramner, one of his good mates, I mentioned before, Martin Bootser, who he puts in as as head of theology at, at Cambridge University. Uh, Bootser is probably my favourite reformer, hmm. and he comes uh, comes from Strasbourg in Germany, and and he's pulled over, and he's done a lot of stuff, and actually he's really connected to John Calvin in in that Calvin was a disciple of of Martin Bootser, and Martin Bootser in uh, 1536, I'm pretty sure I've got that date right, he wrote um, essentially a new ordinal for his ministers in Strasbourg called the True Care of Souls. Mm. And he gives that, or rather, Cramner uses that, and um, in, in his re- reformation of of the English ordinal, mm. it's it's a lot based on Boots's own work, and hence that phrase of feeding the sheep, feeding the sheep, that that image of of being a shepherd. Um, but it really is about the true care of souls. Um, that that the role of of a of a bishop or a presbyter or or uh, the priest, the, the deacon, that's their role caring for people's souls. And so when you think about that, that's a huge weighty responsibility that we have. It's got eternal consequences. And so, yeah, we, we need to be praying for our leaders for sure. Amen. Um, brother, I've got so, I got so many more questions that I could ask, but I think I, I, I let, let's 
draw it to a conclusion there. That's a perfect point on which to end. Um, uh, if listeners, you, you've enjoyed this conversation. I hope you have. I'm really grateful, Steve, for your time. Um, you are going to want to get a copy of Steve's book. Genuinely, it's um, I mean, it's, it's brilliant. It's also very accessible. Building the Church of England, the Book of Common Prayer, and the Edwardian Reformation just out with Brill uh, Press. Uh, so do, um, do find yourself a copy of that book. Uh, Steve, brother, thank you so much. It's been a, a lot of fun. Thanks, Sam. I really appreciate it. It was awesome. Yeah, thanks man. Thanks so much. So everybody, thanks for tuning in. Um, great conversation to get us rolling into the fall. If you've enjoyed it, please do leave a warm review wherever you're listening. And uh, share us on the godless war zone of whatever social media uh, you're on. And in the meantime, um, we're going to look forward to great conversations coming up over the fall. Over the next few months, we'll be chatting with Paul Lewis Metzger on how Christianity challenges our throwaway culture with a radical personalist ethic. With Andrew Davison on the profound theological questions raised by the possibility of extraterrestrial life. So, Uh, bring your pointy tinfoil hat for that one. And with Kevin Rowe on what it means to lead a Christian community today. Many more besides. In the meantime, uh, I'm Sam Forniker. Thanks for listening. Uh, This has been the Ridley Institute Podcast.